Well, good morning. Thankful to be here this morning. Thankful to be able to worship the Lord today. Ask you, if you will, to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We started this series, just a short series of a few weeks in 1 Corinthians last week, looking at the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, dedicated to the resurrection of Christ and the meaning that it has for us. And as we gather here today, I know that it's Palm Sunday, and traditionally, what would happen on Palm Sunday is we would pause from whatever series we may be in, and we would preach a passage from uh, the Gospels about Palm Sunday and what that means. And then, of course, next week, Easter, we'll preach about the resurrection. What we wanted to do this year is focus these four weeks on this resurrection and what it means for us and looking at it from different areas in different ways. Palm Sunday is the Sunday that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, began his final week of his ministry before he would die on the cross and being raised again on the third day. And so, as I've said many times, the very fact that we are gathered here this morning on this Sunday morning, the first day of the week, testifies that we believe Jesus is alive. For we have gathered together on the same morning that Christ Jesus rose and we have been doing that as believers ever since the resurrection because every time we gather, it's a celebration of the fact that our Savior is alive. And that's why we come together. And this week, we celebrate that. This week that we look to, and, and we have many different things going on. Tonight at 6, we have our worship time together, looking to the cross and to the resurrection, celebrating what Christ has done for us. Friday, on Good Friday at noon, in this room, we'll gather together considering the cross and what the cross means for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And then next Sunday, we'll gather back in this space, rejoicing, rejoicing again that Jesus is alive, celebrating his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And I believe that it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the linchpin of our salvation. And what I mean by that is if you pull the resurrection out, then all of it falls apart. The resurrection is what holds all of it together. And if Jesus is alive, then everything he said and everything he did is true. If not, then we have no reason to follow him today. We have no reason to follow him. I believe this is exactly what Apostle Paul was teaching in 1 Corinthians 15. And I want, to understand, want you to understand what I mean by this. The resurrection is not more important than his death on the cross. It's not more important even than his virgin birth. It's not more important than his perfect life. All of those things are vitally important and go together in that one place that we call, that one person that we call Jesus Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul wants to make it clear on how important the cross is. Here in Corinthians itself, when he's writing in the first chapter, he tells the Corinthians as he's addressing the fact that some of them say they follow Cephas, and some say they follow Paul, and some say they follow Christ, he comes to them and says, look, only Jesus has been crucified for you. And he says in chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he continues in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
Paul says that the very center of his message is the cross of Christ. He tells us in chapter 2, verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's message always centered upon the death and crucifixion of Jesus. He says, I knew nothing. And there's not anything else I could give you, not anything else I could offer you. I knew nothing amongst you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. But note that Paul never preaches the cross without the resurrection. It's one package for him. In fact, I want to show this to you as well before we look to ours in Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is in Athens. He had come to Athens. It's a, it's a city similar, almost exactly like Corinth. He had come there and he had uh, began to look around. And what he noticed in Athens was that the city was full of idols, it says in chapter 17. He comes and he saw, sees that this city's full of idols, so his heart is yearning for them. So it tells us that he reasoned in the synagogue, as was his normal practice, but he also went into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And so as Paul is reasoning in the marketplace about Christianity there in Athens, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, it tells us in verse 18 of chapter 17 in Acts, some of them conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And so for them, Paul's message is summarized in this resurrection. Of course, he's, he knows nothing amongst them but Jesus Christ and him crucified, but understand that Paul would never preach the crucifixion without the resurrection. And so he's summarizing. They're listening to this because this resurrection means something to them. This is important. And as it says that they grabbed Paul and they said, come, we're going to take you to the area of Pegasus. That's where we discuss these things. For some of them spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new, it says. So Paul goes to the area of Pegasus and he stands before all of these philosophers and all of these leaders in Athens. And he gives what I consider uh, the greatest Christian sermon that may be ever preached. He's preaching and we don't have the full text. You look at this and some of you may say, well, that's a short sermon, Josh. Well, he didn't tell, they didn't write down every word. We preach longer. But Paul stands up in the midst of all of them and he says, men of Athens, in chapter 17, verse 22, I perceived that in every way you were very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art of the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
As Paul preaches this sermon, he gets to this very point to say there's coming a day of judgment and you can know this is coming because Jesus is alive. This man that God sent has been raised from the dead. And you know, this was the point of contention because the very next verse in Acts 17, 32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. No way that can be true. No way that's any seriously. We know that people aren't raised from the dead. We know that people don't come back to life. And as Paul preaches this, they get to that point and that issue, the issue of the resurrection becomes the point of contention. And what I believe happens there in the area of Pegasus is the same thing that may happen in each and every one of us today. It comes down to whether or not we believe this to be true. Is Jesus alive or not? Is he alive or not? In fact, all of, all of Christianity comes down to this point. The resurrection calls them to pause. It calls them to stop and go, wait a minute. I don't know if I can believe that. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can put my faith in that. But Paul says this is the peace and ultimately, this is the piece that matters most. Before this, of course, you could take it or leave it. In fact, many people have died on the cross. They knew that in Athens. Many people have died. In fact, the day Jesus died, two others died with him. It was a main way for Romans to, to put persecute or put to death uh, those who were not their citizens who caused some sort of crime. It was to try to show them that, that you don't want to do this. You don't want to cross us Romans. And so they used the cross all the time. So many had died on a cross. In fact, there was many in those days that even claimed to be the Messiah. Many came along and said, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that it was speaking of. There was many who were trying to say they were the Messiah. There were many who died on the cross. There were many who claimed to do miracles even in those times. But there was only one here. There was only one that claimed that he rose again. There was only one that claimed that, that death came, but this one came back alive. And what Paul is saying is that this one is has risen, and that is what matters most. It makes Jesus different than all the others. Whatever claim they may be, whatever ones they did, whatever they, wherever they, however they died, it makes Jesus different from all of them. And if this is true, this changes everything. And this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15. The Corinthians, like the Athenians, had come along and said, you know what, can we really trust the resurrection? Can we really believe that's the case? Can God really raise somebody from the dead? And Paul had already told them back in verses 1 through 11 that this is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. This is primary. And if you doubt the resurrection, then Paul says all of your understanding and belief falls apart. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is good. And help us today to see our resurrected Savior again, Father, alive, living at the right hand, interceding on our behalf. And help us to trust and know that this is true and live our life in light of it. All for your glory and all in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Baptist theologian W.T. Connor said the resurrection of Jesus is the total fact of Christianity. Christianity is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus and is the evidence for the resurrection itself. But here in the Corinthian church, as Paul was reaching them and teaching them and is addressing this issue, like those people in Athens, they were questioning this idea that God could raise anyone from the dead. And Paul had made this point that this is primary. This is central to everything they are. So in verse 12, Paul begins here. He begins as in this passage, in this text I read, now if Christ is proclaimed. This could also read, and maybe your translation has it, but to contrast verses 1 through 11. If this is of first importance, that Christ died, it was buried and raised again, if that's primary, and you're saying that God can't raise the dead, if you're arguing that, then we have a problem. So Paul says, but if that's your argument, let's understand it then. If God can't raise the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, Paul follows with what are seven horrible consequences. If Christ has not been raised, then we've got seven horrible consequences of the fact that Jesus is still dead. And that's what Paul wants them to look at. If Christ had not been raised, then first, the apostles' preaching is in vain. He says this in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. First, the apostles' preaching is in vain. Here, by what he means in vain is it is devoid of any intellectual sensibility. I mean, surely that's what they were arguing, right? We don't see people being raised from the dead, so nobody believes that. Intellectually, this is outside of verify. You know, we can't verify this, so, so no one believes it. If Christ has not been raised, it's void of any morality. You can't really trust it. If Christ has not been raised, it has no spiritual value for you. If Christ has not been raised, it is emptiness. It's empty talk. He's just another man that died on a cross. He's just another man that, that lived a good life. That's all he is. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain. It's not worth your time. It's not worth you building your life on. It's not fulfilling to you. It won't satisfy you. It's not enough. Remember, Paul is talking here about the apostles' preaching. And what we know is that the apostles' teaching and preaching is, is given to us in the New Testament. The New Testament is the apostles' preaching and teaching, the foundation of the church. And what he's saying here is if Christ has not been raised, then the New Testament even, the words of the apostles, is of no value to you whatsoever. Now some may say, some may say that the fact that God's word is such good teaching that it doesn't really matter if Jesus died on a cross and rose again. It's still something good to follow, right? It's still good life lessons for us. It's still good things for us to pursue. In fact, I heard this uh, between a, a, a um, debate between two theologians on the radio. A few years ago, they found a box, an osiery box. And this is an archaeology. In those days, they would take the box and they would place them in the tomb. And when the, the bodies had decayed, they would go and get the bones and they'd place them in a box, you know, and they'd keep this box of bones. And that's what it was. 
And on this osiery box, they had the name was on there, and they believed that this was the bones, these were the bones of Jesus, they believed. They believed in this box were the bones of Jesus. They tried to verify it, and they were working through this process, and then they were speaking these two theologians. One theologian, they asked him, he said, if it's proven that those are the bones of Jesus, what does that mean for your faith? And the first theologian said, well, we know that that's fine. I don't need Jesus to be raised. It, it, it's good teaching. It's good, it's good um, thoughts in the scripture. It's a good way to build your life. So I'm not dependent on what they find in that box. The second theologian, they asked him the same question. He said, well, to be honest, if they prove that those bones are Jesus' bones in the box, then that means my faith is foolishness. I don't trust it. I don't follow after it. In fact, the scripture says that we should eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. For it has no power for us. It has no truth for us. It has nothing for us. And so ultimately what, we're, what Paul is saying is that same thing. If Jesus is still dead, don't follow our teaching. Don't live your life upon this apostolic teaching. Don't build yourself upon this New Testament. If Jesus is still dead, then you've got every reason to go and do whatever you want to. Live freedom in your life, however you want to live. Go and pursue whatever lust, whatever passion you want. Don't build your life on this because it is a lie, he says. It's in vain. There's no power in it. There's no goodness in it. Paul says if Jesus is still dead, then don't trust what we proclaim for it's in vain. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Christianity, if false, is of no importance at all. Christianity, if it's false, is of no importance. And if it's true, it's of infinite importance. If it's false, it's of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing, Lewis says, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And the difference between no importance or infinite importance, Paul says, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's of no importance if, if he's not alive. But if it is, if he is alive, it's of infinite importance. But second, the Corinthian believers, not only has the apostles been teaching in vain, the Corinthian believers have believed in vain. He says, your faith is in vain. You've been sold a false bag of goods. You've been told something that can satisfy you and it can't. You've been told that you can build your life upon this truth and you can't. You've been told that this was the rock, the foundation that the storms could not knock against and it's not. You've been told that everything you hope for is found in this message and there is no hope in it whatsoever. You believed in vain, he said, if Christ Jesus is still dead. A bunch of promises have been made to you that cannot be delivered upon if Christ Jesus is still dead. Like Aunt B in episode 24, season 3, Dan DeGriffith Show. When Colonel Henry comes in selling his Indian elixir, believing this will cure the ails of the midlife crisis. This will give her everything she could ever long for. It will cure whatever ails her, only to find out it was just 85% alcohol. And whatever it did, it may have made her feel fine for a moment. In the end, she was hung over and she was still in her sins. She was still in her crisis. So it is, Paul says, with this truth. If Jesus isn't alive, it's just that Indian elixir. And in the end, it may make you feel fine for a moment to trust in these things or to believe in these things, but in the end, they still leave you dead and hopeless. It's in vain, he says. But more than that, he goes... He says, if Jesus isn't alive, then the apostles are misrepresenting God. He just went through verses 1 through 11 talking about the witnesses that have seen his resurrection. 
Paul, a witness of his resurrection. Peter, a witness of his resurrection. 500, a witness of their resurrection. In fact, all throughout this New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of what we believe and how our ethics and how we follow after him because he's alive. That changes everything for us. It's there. And so he says, if that's true, then they are only misrepresenting God. That's all they're doing. They're witnesses, but you can't trust them. They're witnesses, but you can't follow them. In fact, to bear false witness is not just an inconvenience for you. It's a criminal act in those days. To bear false witness in court, just like it is now, is a criminal act. To lie under oath is a criminal act. And so Paul is saying, not only can you not trust us, we're a bunch of criminals now for what we proclaim because we're misrepresenting God. He goes on. If Jesus isn't alive, then the Corinthians are believing in futility. Emptiness, fruitlessness, powerless. This message cannot help you. It cannot push you forward. It cannot give you purpose. It cannot give you life. It cannot give you anything. It's just futile. It's blown and gone with the wind. If Jesus isn't alive, then you are still in your sins, he says in verse 17. If Jesus isn't alive, then your problem ultimately has not been fixed before God. If Jesus is not alive, then you are still in your sins, and you are still under God's wrath, separated from him and only judging, uh, deserving his judgment. If you are still in your sins, you know the wages of those sins are death. And what has separated from you from God has not been dealt with finally, and you have not been reconciled to him, and you do not have the peace that only he can offer, and you do not have the hope that only he can give, because you are still in your sins, Paul says. In fact, you are condemned in that way. Because of this, if Jesus isn't alive, then what he did on the cross for you is not valid. It's not enough. He's just another criminal that died there. If Jesus isn't alive, then your sins have not been forgiven and you are still lost and undone. If Jesus hadn't, is not alive, he says in verse 18, then all those who have fallen asleep have ultimately perished. He's referring to those who have died since the resurrection and believed. And so he's referring to them and he says they've fallen asleep. So ultimately there's no hope of an afterlife. There's no hope of salvation. There's no hope of a new body and there's no hope of that glorified state. There's no hope of that. They have perished and they're dead. John 3.16 is not true. There's no hope. There's no purpose. There's no meaning in life whatsoever. Eat, sleep, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, he says. Because there's no purpose if Jesus is still dead. There's no hope if Jesus is still dead. And finally, he says that if Jesus is still dead, then we as believers are the most to be pitied. If in Christ Jesus we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied, he says in verse 19. In other words, we look like fools. Look at us now. We've gathered in this room. We've, we've gathered together on this morning just like we do every Sunday morning. We've gathered together and we sang songs about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, right? We gather together, we put in practice, we put in time, we come in this place, we prepare, and we gather around this truth that Jesus Christ came, suffered, died on the cross, and rose again, and we sing. And if he is not alive, then we are all fools for doing these things. If Jesus isn't alive, then why would we sit here and sing about him? Why would we rejoice in these things? If Jesus is not alive, he has no hope for us. And Paul says, if Jesus isn't alive, we are almost to be pitied, not looking upon them as the ones with hope and love and salvation. We looked upon as ones who are pitiful and sorrowful. 
Just like we would look in people who don't trust in truth. He says, we are most to be pitied. If Jesus Christ was still dead, then we are most to be pitied. What a sad lot we are, having gathered here today to rejoice in him and worship him. Paul gets to those seven things. If Jesus isn't alive, then there's no reason to trust. There's no reason to believe. There's no reason to follow. There's no reason to even be here. Eat, drink, be merry, and be gone. But then we get to verse 20. But, I'm thankful here, right? But, in fact, now I love how Paul puts this. If Jesus were dead, then we are all the most to be pitied. But, in fact, Paul does not hesitate. He's not saying, here's what I believe. He's not offering up some thought that he had gathered on his own. He says, in fact. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. In fact, he has come. And while the world has done everything they can to explain this away, I mean, just think of the many ways they've tried to deny this resurrection. Just think of those moments. There's a few theories out there. They can only come up with three main ones. The swoon theory, the idea that he was beaten almost to death, whipped, he went on the cross, he suffered, he died, he gave up his life. But what in reality happened is they put him in the grave and they wrapped him up. And just a few days later, the coolness and dampness of the grave woke him up he was only sleeping right woke him up he was only sweeping he swooned if you will passed out if you will woke him up there but the foolishness of this that he went through the beating he went through the torture he went through all of those things he suffered and died and everybody around that cross pronounced him dead and they'd seen it before and then the idea that he went into a tomb wrapped up closed the stone rolled it away and in the darkness with no doctor caring for his wounds with no nothing he got up on the third day and just walked out the nonsense that's the best they could come up with. They came up with a couple. Maybe his body was stolen. Maybe his body was stolen and all of his followers came up with this conspiracy to steal his body. But just remember, Pilate himself sent more guards to the tomb to say, don't let him in. Just remember, they rolled that big stone in front of it saying, don't let him in. Just remember that they made sure that wasn't going to happen. And just think of all of these ragtag bunch that had been following Jesus. They had all gone separate ways. When he was arrested, they ran different directions. But yet that was all part of their master plan to come back together with this great conspiracy to steal their body and only note that those who knew that his body was only stolen is dead somewhere else they're the very ones that stood before the ones that put Jesus to death and said this one whom you crucified God made alive kill me if you will the nonsense of that or the hallucination theory that's a good one they all hallucinated the same we may all hallucinate but none of us hallucinate the same it's quite personal Paul says, come up with whatever theory you can. Paul says, come up with everything you can. What I know for a fact is I have seen him alive myself. What I know for a fact is not only have I seen him alive, I've been willing to die from him. In fact, Paul says this here. Why would I fight the beasts at Ephesus if Jesus was still dead? Why would I go through the persecutions if Jesus was still dead? Why would I be in prison writing this letter if Jesus was still dead? Why would I deal with all these things if Jesus was still dead? Peter had testified as well, having, uh, having denounced Jesus, denied Jesus to a slave girl and a couple others, but only a few days later proclaimed him in front of the council that 
that put him to death. Why? Because he saw him alive. He saw him alive. Peter had seen him, had shared this great exchange with others. Witness after witness have seen him. But more than that, more than that, the very existence, vitality, and persistence of the Christian movement itself is evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. A living Christ and a living Christianity are inseparable. We know this. Look at the Christian church itself. The Christian church has the resurrection written all over it. In the very place where he was crucified and buried, there was an explosion of growth in the face of hostility, in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution from civil religious leaders. They all wanted to put him to death, but yet the gospel went forward. Why? Because they could walk right down the street to the tomb and say, see, this is where they lay him and he is not here anymore. And do whatever you will to me, because I don't fear anyone that can kill the body. I know the one who brings the body back from the dead. Whatever it may be, the testimony of the martyrs throughout the century is a testimony of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Why would anybody die for the one who is dead? But the fact he's alive, now there is no fear. Now there's no fear in the proclamation. And it hasn't stopped growing since. Paul has no hesitation to risk his life for the one who rose again. He knows where the empty tomb is, and he can take you there, he says. And in fact, in fact, Christ Jesus has been raised. As Charles Spurgeon said, the resurrection is a fact better attested than any event in human history, ancient or modern. And Paul says that's the truth. Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits, as it says. This idea of first fruits is an agricultural term, the very first produce at the beginning of the season, which signals a full harvest is coming. And so it is with Christ. If someone plants a garden full of tomato plants, the first ripe tomato comes in, that's the first fruits, signaling there's more to come. And so it is with Christ. He was died, buried, and he rose again, testifying that all of those who live in him will too rise again on the day that he calls us home. The first fruits of this resurrection are here in Christ. Jesus' resurrection was a signal that we too could overcome death and be raised again. And for Paul, the ifs in this chapter that he gives, if Jesus is still dead, those ifs all become undone. The apostles' teaching is not in vain. It is not dead intellectually. It is not devoid of morality. It is not empty. It is life and it is truth and we can build everything upon it. We can build our life upon this teaching and we can lean into it all the more because Jesus is alive. And those who believe do not believe in vain. This is not snake oil. This is living water. This is not just something that we can look at as selling us a false bag of goods. This is truth that we can stand upon and we can believe in in our life can be found fruitful and loving. The apostles are not misrepresenting God if Jesus is alive. They're telling us the truth. Their proclamation and their word is what we can build our life on. And the same God that raised Jesus from the dead can raise us from the dead as well from our sins. If Jesus is alive, then the Corinthians are not believing in futility. Why? Because their sins have been forgiven. Their sins have been forgiven. What separated them from God has been dealt with finally through Jesus Christ on the cross. What separated them from God and brought his wrath and condemnation has been dealt with finally. So now there is no condemnation for those who believe in Christ. Why? Because Christ took their sin upon himself. He died in their place and he rose again, crushing death to death and showing the victory over it all. 
The the thing that separated them from God has been removed. I heard somebody asking it again today or this past week, one preacher, meaning well, I'm sure, but asking what are the Goliaths in your life and how can you face them? I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, the Goliath in your life that stands before you is sin and death. And you could never kill that giant. You needed a hero to step out to kill that giant on your behalf. And so Christ has come, stepped out down into the valley, died on that hill, on that cross, and he is the one who has conquered your Goliath. He's the one who has slayed your sin and your death, and he has dealt with it finally, rising victorious on the third day. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven. And the hope of eternal life It's still there. John 3.16 is still true. That God so loved us that he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Jesus' words in Bethany right before he raised Lazarus from the dead are true. He is the resurrection and the life because he is alive. And those who believed are not to be pitied. Those who believe are the ones who have staked their life on what is true and what is real. Those who believe in him are the ones who have staked their life on this resurrected Savior. And as Paul would say, they will not be disappointed. For Jesus is alive. Paul in Athens is comparing Jesus to the gods of this world. He says he's not silver and gold and stone. As the author of the Psalms say, the gods of this world have eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear. They got feet and they cannot walk. They got hands with no power in them. And Paul is saying, our Savior is completely different. With his eyes, he sees us. He knows our plight. He knows our trouble. He knows our difficulty. With our ears, he hears us. He hears our cries and our pleas and he answers them just as he says he was. With His feet, he came to us when we could never go to him. And with his hands, he has saved us and redeemed us, provided for us, protects us, and gives us all things. He is alive. He's not dead, Paul says. And if you believe in him, you're not to be pitied. You're not to be pitied at all. For you have found what real life is. Paul goes on to say, death has come by Adam. Life has come through Jesus Christ. Death enters in through Adam, but life has come through Jesus Christ. So all of us then, all of us in this room, just as all throughout history have to deal with this truth, the resurrection of Jesus. A.W. Tozer writes, The resurrection of Christ and the fact of the empty tomb are not part of the world's complex and continuing mythologies. This is not a Santa Claus tale. It is history It is reality, it is life, and it is power. So for us, attested in history, believed throughout time, shown forth not only from the apostles, but throughout all of history as Christianity has the resurrection written all over it. We look and we see, what does this mean for us? It means today that it comes down to this. It should come down to this very thing. If you believe Jesus is alive, then you must stake your whole life on that truth. If you believe he's alive, then that's everything. That's the meaning of it all. That's where you build your life. That's where you build your foundation. If you believe Jesus is alive, then you can have your sins forgiven and you can have everlasting life just as he has conquered it. You can conquer it. You can have all of these these things if you believe Jesus is alive. Because everything he said and everything he did is true. 
If you believe it, that's what it comes down to. To say you believe in the resurrection and not follow after Jesus, you are the most to be pitied, Paul says. That is the height of foolishness. To say you believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again and not follow him, Paul would say that's foolishness. But because he's alive, then we have every reason to build our life on it. And it's not only been attested in history, it's not only been attested by the apostles, it's been attested by Christianity, it's been attested in each and every one of us in this room who have believed in him and trusted him. It's been attested in each and every one of us because if you ask us how we know he lives, he lives within our heart. And the testimony of every believer is that Jesus Christ is alive and he lives within me. And how about you then? It really comes down to this. The linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you pull that resurrection out, everything falls apart. But because we know the fact is Christ Jesus has been raised, then it all holds together and one glorious truth and promise to us that anybody who calls upon his name shall be saved. And anybody who trusts in him shall have life and have life everlasting. Do you believe this truth? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the truth of his resurrection. And now I pray, Father, that everybody in this room believes it and follows after him. God, what a time. What a time for us again to hear this message. In a world that offers up so many alternatives, so much snake oil, if you will, trying to get us to put our trust in something else, in a different place, in a different thing, we still have your word. And we still have a Savior who died for us and rose again. And so, God, may everyone in this room and in this place trust in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And if they don't do so now, may they do so at this very moment, God, trusting in him. Change their heart. Help them to see again our resurrected King and help them to follow. God, for those of us who do trust and believe, strengthen our resolve to live in light of the resurrection and to proclaim this truth until the day you call us home. Help us now as we sing, as we worship, as we close this out. If someone's here, God, that needs to, to confess and follow after you, to turn from their sins and find salvation through a, a risen King, a risen Savior, may they come even now to join us, to be a part of this church, to be a part of the proclamation of this risen King, God work and move in their hearts. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.